I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 21. Now last Lord's Day I made a promise. I know, I'm amongst a bunch of skeptics. When I make promises about length of sermons or I make promises about numbering my messages that you don't believe me that I'm going to keep to my my promise. But um, I want to just report that so far I'm on schedule. So far I'm on schedule to preach three sermons on John 21 that I hope will um, serve to be a sufficient number to complete our studies in the Gospel of John. Last week we looked at the miracle of the great catch. That's what I called it, and at least the title in the bulletin, and today we'll see something quite as marvelous, something even more marvelous. We'll see the reality of the depth of the love of a disciple of Jesus towards his master. I told you last week that this 21st chapter, I believe, is integral to the gospel itself. Uh, All the evidence externally is there's no gospel without it or copy of it. And though there are people that say, oh, it doesn't really sound like uh, it's kosher to have what seems to be two endings. I tried to argue with you last week that two endings are appropriate because what the first ending does is it really concludes John's account of the life of Jesus in the days that he was upon this earth. And then this is a, this is a part of the gospel that really serves as something like uh, a book of the Acts something that complements what Jesus began to do and to teach with the things he continues to do and to teach through his apostles, through these seven out in the Sea of Galilee who are actually in the, I think a proper understanding are to see their role in the future as that of what Jesus called them away from the nets earlier to do is to be fishers of men. And then, of course, there's this matter with respect to Simon and matters in which Jesus has to address certain character flaws if Simon's going to be the kind of man he's called to be. He's called to be a man who's going to shepherd the flock. He's called to be this fisher of men. And yet, even as we saw that Thomas could not complete this noble work that Jesus had called him to do, whether or not he ever reached India or not, I had an interesting conversation with Pastor Bala on the subject of Thomas' Christianity in, 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 in India. And he said there's just no historical basis to it. Well, be that as it may, he served Christ somewhere. And he could not serve Christ somewhere as being the sort of skeptical cynic that he appears to be, having this negative take on most everything. And Jesus had to address that matter and call him to be believing. If he's going to fulfill the work that he's called to do, it's in that posture of someone that gives credit to God's word and doesn't go about questioning and doubting and ultimately denying. Actually, he wasn't a doubter at all. He was a denier of the resurrection of Christ. Blessed are those that believe, not having seen, is Jesus' message to him. And certainly through Thomas, that message was to come to the nations. What about Peter? Well, Peter himself had something of a character flaw that I think Jesus does explore in this passage. Uh, Unfortunately, I think it gets misrepresented quite a bit. At least what I think is actually going on here in this interview on the beach that Jesus has with Simon Peter. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to tell you what I think about it. First of all, 
When they had finished breakfast, in verse 15 of chapter 21, John 21, 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now it's true that this is a passage or a chapter in which the future work of these apostles tends to be highlighted. But in reality, Jesus never departs from being central to what they're going to do. Again, Luke was the things Jesus began to do and to teach. Acts was the things he continued to do and to teach. And I think in this epilogue, this final chapter, there's also that element of which Jesus is about the work of preparing these men for their mission in a way that, in a sense, does summarize John's portrayal of Jesus in the first 20 chapters. Now, we saw last week that Jesus is presented in the light of Ezekiel 47. You, get, you have to read it in the light of Ezekiel 47. For the reasons I gave last week, I'm not going to go over this week. But with respect to Ezekiel 47, we find there the temple vision that Ezekiel had. And Jesus comes on the shores of Galilee, in a real sense, as the resurrected temple, he says in John 2, would be raised from the dead. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he's not only the resurrected temple, but again in the light of Ezekiel 47, he's the resurrected temple in which rivers of living water flowed from. Just as again, Jesus betrayed himself to the woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it was you were speaking to, you would have asked, and he would have given you what? Living water. Flowing water. Also in the Feast of Tabernacles to the worshippers there. Jesus on the great day of the feast said, If any man thirst, let him come to me, and out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I don't think it's the believer's belly, it's Christ's belly. It's from he is the source of this living water. So I think you have John 2, John 4, John 7. All meeting us again, Jesus, in all the ways he's described himself, or all the ways we see him coming again before his disciples as the fulfillment of everything that he has said he would be. Also, he's seen as the provider of a meal on the Sea of Galilee through a miracle of the great catch of fish, even as he provided a meal earlier in chapter 6, multiplying loaves and fish to feed 5,000 people. And then, though it's not a precedent that John highlights, yet in the Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic gospels, Jesus is also seen as the one who calls fishermen from their nets to become fishers of men. And then there's another thing that we'll see this morning. 
And that is that Jesus presents himself in the light of everything he's told us about himself as being the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Tend my sheep. And so I think when you look at the content of chapter 21, it's really revisiting everything that comes before and showing us Jesus as the one who resurrected resurrection power and glory through the work of the apostles who can bring all of his promises to pass. All of the things he said about himself that we find this concluding chapter tells us about him. So we learn a lot about the disciples and their future work, but we're also uh, revisiting Jesus himself in all the ways that Jesus has represented himself in the gospel according to John. But now in chapter 21. The scene shifts in verse 15 from the catch and the meal that Jesus prepared for them to a conversation Jesus has with Peter after breakfast. Again, when he had finished breakfast, Jesus said to him, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, what I'm going to be doing at the first part of our message this morning, and I haven't really figured this out in terms of outline. I know some of you feel crippled in a sermon if I don't give you an outline. <laughs> and I feel bad when I haven't been able fully to formulate an outline myself, but I'm going to ask you to try to follow with me as first of all we look at the misconceptions I think we find in the way in which this chapter has been viewed, and the way it's been handled, really throughout, if not the whole of the history of the church, at least more recently, there have been a lot of, I think, misunderstandings for a number of reasons that I won't get into, but I want to just point out the misunderstandings, and then I want to get to the heart of what, 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 what is Peter's problem that Jesus has to address? What is the concern that Jesus is dealing with? And if you leave here this morning, kind of having your mind cleared away of all the stuff that gets said about this passage, and just having a sense of what is Jesus getting at with respect to Peter, I think we'll leave here with a real sense of what Christianity calls us to, what we are called to do along with Peter, and how we're to honor and serve our Lord Jesus as those who are recipients of his word and recipients of this portion of his word and what it says to us as God's people. So we're going to go with the misconceptions to the true conception to our conception. Okay? Hey, that's an outline, isn't it? Misconceptions, right conceptions, our conception. I like that. Write that down. I'll use it next time. Now, the first misconception often found is, although it is a possibility, when Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Often it's viewed as if Jesus, Jesus was offering Simon something of a competition with his other disciples as to who loves Jesus more. Do you love me more than these other disciples? I think is how it sometimes is presented. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I don't think Jesus is after having a competition among the disciples as to which one has greater love. The greater love he possessed towards them. That's the thing that marks greater love. Greater love has no man than this that a man should lay down his life for his friends and he lays down his life for them. But rather, the word more than these could well be translated more than these things. More than these 
things. What can be the possible things Jesus is speaking about when he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these things? Well, how about the things that had to do with this fisherman trade? How about the fish they had just caught, 153 large ones? How about the fishing nets, the fishing boats, the fishing expedition, the success? Imagine being a fisherman, and even if you've gone out at night when the fish really run better than most other times, and as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee will go out at night, and you've labored all night and you've caught nothing. You have to say, heaven's against us. Well, indeed, heaven probably was, because fishing uh, for fish was not to be these men's vocation. It was not what they were called to. Again, Jesus called them away from the fishing, their fishing nets to be what? Fishers of men, right? But now they're back on the sea, they're back fishing, and they caught nothing. Except at Jesus' word, they go and they put the net on the other side of the boat, and they bring in this great catch of fish. And kind of the lessons there from chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. You won't succeed in anything, but it's not so much that yeah, you receive this great blessing from heaven. 153 fish by number. You pulled them into shore. Jesus has added to that the fact he's had breakfast already cooked on the shore with these smaller fish that probably were of a higher quality of uh, for gourmet breakfast than the others. And those other fish were brought in to supplement the thing. He said, man, oh man, what can we do the rest of the fish? Probably get them to market. Man, we can get profit from this. It might get your head spinning to think about all the possibilities. What if Jesus was our business partner in the fishing business. Imagine what we would what would happen. You know, of course there's lots of people today that use Christianity. They use the concept of God's blessing as being some blessing from heaven that's going to ensure maximum profit from their business enterprises. Or that God's going to give them the best life ever now, the best marriage, the best business, the best kids, kids, the best everything. Uh, I'm not sure that that's exactly what we're dealing with here, but you know, I see the temptation. There's a temptation to think that way. If Jesus is on our side, if he's blessing our business, 153 fish we got in already, got in already, where can we bring this thing? Where can it go from here? Jesus is stopping your tracks if you're thinking any such thing. And he knew what he was thinking. Maybe he was thinking such a thing. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than the fishing boats? Do you love me more than your fishing trade? And all that it could bring to you. The second misconception is often around the fact that Jesus uses different words, or at least uh, Peter uses different words, than Jesus uses, at least in the first two instances, with respect to love. And there's a difference that we learned from certain teachers in the latter part of the 19th century. I think the influence of what was called romantic philosophy might have something to do with this, is that they took the notion of love, and they said, well, we have a couple of Greek words here that are different. And they went to define agape. Sometimes we know that word agape, which is translated love in the scriptures. That that's the highest love, that's God's love, that's sacrificial love, that's love that doesn't consider oneself, but is concerned only with the object loved. And they make it different from philo, or philo, or Philadelphia, we got brotherly love. And that has to do with love amongst uh, friends, or love that is not quite as high as agape, has to do with human relationships, maybe you could speak of affection and such things. And the idea then is that this is a different kind of love. And um, Jesus is asking, Peter, do you love me with this great love, this highest of all loves? 
And Peter could only answer, no, Lord, I really can't love you that way, but I love you with this lesser love. I love you with philo love or philo love. Uh, but Peter, don't you love me with agape love? No, Lord, the second time. It's, uh, it's a little lower love. It's, it's the best I can do. And then finally, Jesus condescends to Peter's level, and he uses philo love in the third thing. And Jesus then gets in agreement, well, I'll accept philo love. And now he's renewed and restored to his ministry, having professed his love to Jesus three times. Well, let me say this. There really is no difference, no distinction between these words, they are really synonyms. Uh, the Greek word had different words for love. In fact, more than the ones that are used here. Uh, but we have different words for love too. And we might speak of our deep affection or fondness or warmth or intimacy. Our British friends, i got a British term for you. At least we don't use it here in America, but I think I hear it all the time on British television shows and in books I read written by British authors that speaks of someone being besotted with someone. Besotted with someone. You say you're, he's besotted with her. Now he's just filled with, he can't think of anything else but her. He's just besotted with love. <laughs> Can you imagine a conversation in which someone would say on just a human level, you know, two lovers are talking, Golda and Tevya and the fiddler on the roof, asking the question, do you love me? Do you love me? And receiving the answer, yes, you know that I'm completely taking with you. Oh, wait a minute. we got a disagreement here about whether he loves her or not. Does he love her with the highest love? She's asking, you don't do that. It's just a synonymous notion. He's not saying that I don't quite love you with the highest love, but I feel something different called completely taken. No. He's saying, of course I love you. In fact, I not only love you, I'm completely taken with you. That's what we have here. Peter's response is, Lord, yes, you know I agape you and I also fill you. <laughs> the full, you know, he's responding positively. And Jesus doesn't say back, well, Peter, I'm disappointed in you. Your love can't rise to the highest level, so I have to come down to yours. There's nothing like that in the passage. So if you have any thought, I know you've heard great sermons on that theme. I've heard them too. I probably preached them in the past. But whether we've preached them or heard them, I just don't think that it has much validity. A second area of misunderstanding is the fact that Jesus presents the question three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the idea then becomes, well, three times is the times that Peter denied Jesus. And so what we have here is an attempt on Jesus' part to get Peter to see how terrible his denials were and that in order to get back in his good graces or in order to get back in his calling as an apostle, he has to counter the denial with a threefold confession of love. And somehow that's going to compensate for the denial. Or that Peter then, upon the confession of his love three times, could then be restored to service. That's an interesting idea, but you know what? There's no mention of Peter's denial in the passage. There's no mention of being restored to service. There's simply the question, do you love me? And how do you show it? Do you love me, Peter? Well, if you do and you say you do, 
here's how you show it. Here's how you express it. Feed my sheep. You may ask then, why the threefold question? Well, generally in Scripture, the presence of a threefold something gives in Scripture a sort of intensification of something. Now think about Peter's threefold denial. Three, Peter's threefold denial makes it very clear that his denial of Jesus wasn't simply a momentary slip. <laughs> Something that happens three times is not a momentary slip. This is something that he thought through. After the first, he didn't feel bad about it. I have to deny him. I mean, look, he submitted to arrest. I was prepared to take the sword. I was prepared to go to battle. I was prepared to bring in the kingdom, make Israel great again by the power of the sword. And Jesus submitted to his captors. Where does that leave Peter? Probably very confused. Probably very disillusioned. Probably at that point looking to protect himself. Why should I die just because he's going to die? Why should I give my life in a lost cause, perhaps? But is it the third denial? Purposeful, intentional. We have this picture of a man fully persuaded it ain't worth it to follow Jesus again. And then Jesus makes an appearance and he beholds Jesus. And it's a funny thing. It's not so much that Jesus said something. Peter, how, did, how have you let me down? It's the fact that he saw Jesus. He looked into the face of Jesus and he remembered what he had just done. Jesus had predicted. Jesus had told me exactly what was going to happen. Maybe what I'm doing here in the high priest's courtyard is something I shouldn't be doing. Because he told me where I'm going, you cannot follow. And I did it anyway. I followed him anyway. But either way, it certainly intensifies the reality of Peter's denial and it sticks it in his craw, the fact that he did exactly what Jesus said he would do. We have three times also that Jesus separates himself from his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, it would be possible, let this cup pass for me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And when you do that three times, again, there's that sense of the intensification of that whole process of prayer that he engaged in, in the midst of his sufferings, of the awareness of what was before him. And the writer of the Hebrews reflects upon that agony that he endured in the garden. It's three times around the throne of God's glory in the vision of Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim used the word holy. Why do you say holy is the Lord God of hosts? The whole, her, whole earth is filled with his glory. Why did, why did they say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts? Again, it's that threefold repetition that intensifies the reality of the Holy One of Israel. You want to emphasize something? Well, in our day, we highlight it, maybe in yellow if it's a book, or we um, do it also on the internet. You drag the thing along to highlight something. Well, in the, word, in the Hebrew language, you just simply <laughs> repeat it three times. 
He'd repeat it three times. Think of David grieving the death of Absalom, his son, and calling him son three times. 2 Samuel 19.4 Oh my son, Absalom! Oh Absalom! My son! My son! Three times. I think Jesus in raising the question of Peter's love is intending to intensify in Peter's mind Not that he loved him, because he always loved Jesus. But on what terms does he love Jesus? In what way does he love Jesus? How is his love to Jesus expressed? And Jesus wants him to know, Peter, you don't get to decide in your own mind, through your own reasoning, what love consists in. You don't get to decide how you serve me. I tell you how you are to serve me. You are to feed my sheep. You are to feed my lambs. You are to tend my flock. And by the way, if you didn't know it, the word for sheep and lambs, there's also different words. And the word for tend is also different. You have two words not only for love. You have two words for sheep and you have two words for tending. But nobody preaches about the differences in those words. Only love is the one they center on. It's very, very interesting. Let me just raise a question. And the question is simply this. What led Peter into the courtyard where he denied Jesus three times. Well, that's why I read the passage in John chapter 13 earlier on. Because you see, Peter's threefold denial resulted from Peter determining himself to set the terms of his relationship to Jesus by his own sense of what love required of him. Even when his ideas, his course, his plan was clearly in defiance to the clear words of Jesus. What led Peter to the court of the high priest in the first place. Did Jesus say, Peter, join me there? Peter, accompany me there? Peter, I'm going to be led away in arrest and I want you at my side when it happens? No. Go back to chapter 13 and verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow is there any ambiguity in those words, Peter? Where I'm going, you cannot follow. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. He doesn't submit to Jesus' words, does he? He has another idea. And you see, that's something that was true of Peter all along the way. We call him impulsive. He sports out things unthinkingly. And he's always setting out new plans and new notions and new ideas. Let's build some shrines to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we'll hang out here a while with you guys. <laughs> How about hmm, Peter? Uh, he... If, uh, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Okay then, Lord. Not only my feet, but my hands and my head also. 
<laughs> Where did he come up with these ideas? Jesus says one thing and he wants to add new things. Not just my feet, Lord, but my hands and my head also. That's the mark of an impulsive guy. That's the mark of a guy who just blurts things out without giving thought. And he's doing things and planning things whether or not it's his Lord's will to do it. And it's also true particularly, I think, when it came to our Lord's safety. Peter saw himself as Jesus' protector. Peter was going to save Jesus from danger. Peter was going to save Jesus from death. Remember Matthew 16? Matthew 16, verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter said, Lord, I'm taking, I'm, my breath is taken away, but Lord, I submit to your words. No, he didn't do that. He didn't submit to his words one bit. He took them aside, and the scripture tells us Peter began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What's going on here? Now, I understand. Peter thinks he loves Jesus. And he thinks to love Jesus would require that Jesus would be kept from such a fate as this. And if, if Peter could stand in the way and prevent it, he's going to do everything in his power to do it. But for this cause, the Son of Man came into the world to lay down his life a ransom for many. Peter, you have to stop coming up with a different plan, a new idea, a new way. To show love. You can't be Jesus' Savior. He's your Savior. You can't die for Him. He must die for you. The way ahead for Peter had to be a way of obedience. Had to be a way of hearing and heeding the voice of Jesus. That's what obedience is. It's hearing God's words and doing what God says. He can't be making it up on his own. If he loves Jesus, he has to learn to show love in the proper way. I think that's Peter's main problem. It's impetuosity, yes. It's being the idea factory coming up with everything now. But I also think that at the heart of the thing is a misdirected love. Is a misdirected love. Love to Christ has to be love on Jesus' terms. And it's not as if Jesus was secretive about the terms. Because again, back in chapter 13, right at the time when Jesus says to him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, because Peter, obviously, you're looking to not heed my words, and you're looking to follow your way, and you think you're going to lay down your life for me, but that's not what you're supposed to be doing, Peter. Jesus makes it clear exactly what he's supposed to be doing. Again, go back to chapter 13. And right before Simon Peter questions the Lord about where are you going and why can't he follow, Jesus says, well, actually, back in verse 33, he says, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, and you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I see 
also say to you now, where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot come, Peter. You cannot come, my disciples. Where I am going, I must go alone. Well, Lord, what are we to do? What are we to do? Good question, isn't it? Well, Jesus gives him the answer. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Jesus makes his duty clear. It's not to follow Jesus in arrest and crucifixion. It was to care for his brothers, and I assume the sisters as well, all who were Jesus' followers who were simply shattered by the fact that he was arrested, shattered by the fact that he was taken away to the high priest's home, shattered by the fact that he would soon be nailed to a cross and that he would die. These people were shattered by the things that were occurring. And one of their principal disciples, the lead disciples, where was he? When they ached, when they were troubled and confused, when they couldn't figure out up from down and right from wrong and good from bad. They were just simply disoriented in the fullest measure. Where was Peter to help them? Where was Peter to wash their feet? Where was Peter to care for their needs? Where was Peter to commiserating with them and saying we'll abide in his love in some time or another and we're going to figure all this out at the end. Let's maintain hope in God. Where was he? He should have been doing the work of tending the sheep, of caring for the flock. And he was missing in action. He was in the court of the high priest when he should have been with his brethren. And so when they come to the beach, of the Sea of Galilee. Peter didn't come as an unforgiven man. Peter didn't come carrying a load of guilt. And Jesus didn't come to renew the question of his denial. That got addressed when Jesus looked at Peter. There's a funny thing about looking into the face of God in the vision of Isaiah 6 or God incarnate in Jesus. You come to say, woe is me. I am undone. A man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I see my sins. Why? Because the law got thundered to me a million times over? No. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I see myself in the light of who he is. And that happened to Peter early on. Remember in the Sea of Galilee in Luke 5? In that first great catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee? When that happened, remember what Peter said. He said, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Then he felt conviction. Then he felt his guilt. But here in the Sea of Galilee, it's an interesting thing. Peter's not running from Jesus as a guilty man. He's running toward Jesus. He leaves the boat and he swims to shore. He couldn't get to Jesus quick enough. People laden with their guilt don't go directly into the face of God, into the face of incarnate deity, if they're carrying a load of guilt. That got addressed when he wept bitterly. 
When Jesus in his resurrected, resurrection appearances, I believe it was to the women, yes, he said to them, Go and tell my brothers and Peter that I'm risen from the dead. He specifically mentions Peter. And then when Jesus appears in the upper room, earlier on in chapter 20, he doesn't breathe on just the, the nine. It wasn't Judas minus Thomas minus Peter and said, receive the Holy Spirit as the Father has sent me, so send I you. No, Peter was included in the number. Again, there's simply no evidence at all that this is a question of calling back to his mind his denials. It's calling him to the future work. And the future work was the work of being fishers of men and tending the flock, gathered by the chief shepherd of the sheep, and ministering to their needs. And you know how I know this? Is that Peter had never seems never to have, to have forgotten the lesson of his work as a shepherd, as a forgiven shepherd, restored by God's grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not through some lengthy process of personal humbling. Not through some lengthy process of his own repentance. But through his humbling himself with bitter tears and his failure. Because his failure was not just he denied Jesus. He didn't, he didn't mind Jesus. He didn't obey Jesus. He didn't do what Jesus told him he was to do. And now Peter, Jesus is saying to Peter, You're restored. Feed my sheep. Do now what you didn't do then. Tend my sheep now. And Peter in his first epistles in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. You see how some of this language calls to mind the meeting he had with Jesus on the beach. When he says, I exhort, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory to be revealed. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. That is among you, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not as something that you are doing just out of a debt, but be something you desire to do, knowing that this is the will of God, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... Again, Jesus appeared as the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, now commissioning him to go and shepherd his flock, tend his lambs. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. And he uses the expression to the end of verse, the, the paragraph in verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore. He's the great restorer. He'll confirm us in the face of our failures, in the face of our sins. He's the great restorer, the confirmer, the strengthener, the establisher. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, brethren, our time is really gone, but what a great picture of the work of gospel ministry. It's the work of tending the flock. It's the work of, of Jesus' heart as a shepherd to his own people. 
That sacrificial love that Jesus displayed in giving his life for us is to be reflected in the hearts and minds of those that serve him. They're not to be pastor popes. They're not to be elders held on some kind of a high pedestal to whom nobody can draw near without a sense of, man, they may just say something that's going to really put my sins before me. They're shepherds who tend the flock. They care for the sheep. They love the sheep. They tend the sheep. They mend the sheep. They love the sheep. They're willing to die for the sheep. That's the work of gospel ministry. And in a sense, that's what we're all called to with respect to one another. To care for one another. To love one another. To serve one another. As God in Christ has served us to humble ourselves under His mighty hand that we're not too good to Step, stoop down and wash the feet of one another if that's what's needed at the hour. I mean, God be pleased uh, to bless the ministry of his word. It's a bit more controversial than in other, most Lord's days, but I just felt, you know, I feel that some, in some ways um, Peter's been misunderstood in his denial of Jesus. And I think that, and I've told you that before in past sermons, but I also think Jesus has been misunderstood in the way he addresses Peter and deals with Peter, restores Peter. And at every point, the love of Christ is on full display. And at every point, the greatness of the love of God's people to Christ, reciprocating his love to us, is, is well on full display. So if Jesus asked you this morning, do you love me? What would be your response? Could you say... Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. May every one of us here be able with a clear conscience to say, I could say that in the presence of the Jesus who knows me through and through. You know, Lord, that in the midst of all of my failures, in the midst of all of my struggles, in the midst of all of my questionings, in the midst of all of my imperfections, in the midst of all the things that can be said against me and plenty can be, yet you do know that I love you. May God be pleased to make every one of us to be able to make that good confession and if not to humble ourselves before him with the recognition that it's only the wretchedness of our sins that keep us from making that confession and we need to turn away from those idols and come to know and to worship and to serve the living and the true God. Run to Jesus. Find in him the fullness of life and the fullness of grace, the fullness of forgiveness the fullness of divine provision is to be found in Him and in Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. We're thankful that we can traffic in sacred notions and ideas and this wonderful truth that You've given us in the Scriptures about Your Son that we can take the light in Him, we can behold Him with the eye of faith, and we can, though we've never seen Him ourselves with the eye of the flesh, yet we, believing, we can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So fill the hearts of your people with joy unspeakable as we consider the greatness and goodness and love and wisdom and just all the blessings that we as your people do find in our Lord Jesus and help us to be faithful in our walk before you. That, Lord, when you speak, we will hear and we will do all of your holy will. 
as we come and we ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.